Good morning. You may be seated. Uh, can we get some lights? I just want to see some faces. I'm glad to be up here sharing from God's Word. I hope that you're glad to be sitting under it. It's a, it really is, a, I want to emphasize every time, it really is a humbling thing to proclaim truth um, when I know that I struggle so often to believe it. Um, so I'm with you under the preaching of God's Word, but I'm also grateful to be used by Him and in whatever way this morning to be a blessing to you and an encouragement to you. Uh, we, are, we are working through wisdom literature. The series is called The Best Life. Um, kind of a joke, but not really. Uh, the idea of having the best life, we know that's to come. It's not going to be here, but if we were to examine how can we have our best life, it has to be in full submission and surrender to God and, and, and by way of knowing what is right and doing what is right. And we, we think wisdom can be simply defined doing good and right things. The application of good and right knowledge is doing good and right things, and you, that's wisdom. And God has this infinite knowledge, and he has perfect application, so he is supremely wise. So it stands to reason that the only way to come to true wisdom is to know God. Human beings are flawed in a lot of ways. We, we are by nature, by sinful nature, self-centered. We care about ourselves supremely. And, and, and we're incredibly limited in our scope of things. We can't even understand what someone else understands, much less all things which God understands. So we are narrow-minded, uh, too narrow-minded, too latched on to our own opinions to be wise in the truest sense. And so it's imperative that we consider what does God have to say about wisdom? And to do that, we've been working through wisdom literature. Uh, to give you an example, in case that wasn't convincing, uh, to give you an example of our narrow-mindedness, just one example, let's, let's consider something easy, like racism. That's easy. And why not? If you are a, a narrow-minded liberal, you may believe that you may feel strongly convicted that all the issues surrounding racism are solely the issue of systemic systems or uh, institutions, and, and the solution, therefore, is to somehow dismantle and reconstruct the systems, and that would fix racism. Likewise, if you are a narrow-minded conservative, you may think the solution is solely in individualistic responsibility, and if people could just get their stuff together and try harder and make better decisions, then the, the oppression would be over with. And, and I think that we may be able to get to a point where, like, it's probably a little bit of both, but still so limited, and we have these people on either side fighting strongly for what they believe in, and many are using Scripture to hold up their position and some people are just racist. And so with all the complexity of it, I think we can, we can come to a point where we just don't know what to do. And that can be really frustrating for the church who wants to be a people who do good things. It's really frustrating when you don't know what to do. And the problem is that we lack the wisdom to do the right things. And so we've been working through Scripture trying to figure out how to be wise, not just so we can solve racism, but so that we can know Jesus, the embodiment of wisdom. And with wisdom comes a broadened perspective. But it takes a renewed mind, and that's what we see constantly in Scripture, that the old us, the sinful us, isn't good enough. We have to be made new, and the new us 
can see. The new us no longer walks around in blindness, reaching for things, trying to figure things out. But our perspective is broad, and God makes us wise as he conforms us into the image of Christ. But first, we must be made new. And then we put on this newness, and we have knowledge that is good and right, and we can apply it in good and right ways. It's called wisdom. And I don't believe it's available outside of the subjective truth that Christ suffered and was raised from the dead. And in him alone, we find freedom and wisdom. So the Bible makes it very clear that wisdom has to start somewhere. So I told you it's from a new mind, but again and again, we see through Proverbs especially that wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. So today we're going to talk about a little bit of that as we continue in the book of Job. So if you want, you can open up to Job. We're going to be at the end of it, 38, starting in 38. Uh, I have a love and hate relationship with overviews of Scripture. I love it because I love the amount of information. I just crave information. Studying a lot of Scripture is hard in one week of time and trying to, trying to analyze and, and then break it down. Most of sermon prep is then like taking things out because I just don't have enough time. Uh, and that's the part I hate. There's so much that's rich in this book. There's so much to be gained And we're just not going to be able to spend a lot of time working through that. So the encouragement, as always, is dig deep. You study this word. There's life here. And I hope that today you sense the life that's here in Job. Fearing the Lord is something that should be easy to understand because God's big, right? We fear big things. It's not always like I'm scared for my life, but sometimes it's just like I can't catch my breath because this is big. Like maybe you've been really high and looked down or you see a mountain and you realize how small you are, or you watch the ocean crash onto the shore, and you know that the weight of everything is behind it. That bigness creates in us this sense of awe and reverence and, and fear. So the fear of the Lord is, is understandable in that way, because if you try to describe his bigness, if you try to describe his power, I, it would always, my answer would always be yes, and then more. Because it's not enough. He's unimaginably big. He's unsearchable. He's transcendent. We cannot comprehend him. Like our galaxy, the Milky Way, has an estimated 100 billion stars in it. Billion. Just want to make sure you got the B. 100 billion stars, one galaxy among countless. And scripture talks about this God who can hold that in his hand. And those stars were placed there out of his mouth. He just spoke them into existence and he knows them by name. It's beyond us in so many ways. We can't even, like the cap of humanity, if we put all our minds together in on this, we cannot understand it. He's big and he's worthy of this fear that we're talking about. And if we could stand before the magnitude of his presence, there's no doubt that we would feel it. If he were to appear in a whirlwind, and speak to us, we would feel it. There would be awe, there would be reverence, and it's from that posture that wisdom begins, according to the Word of God. And there's no better picture of this than in Job chapter 38, because we see he is this man standing before an awesome God. Before we get there, just to catch everyone up, in case you've not been with us, so far in Job, if you don't know the story, Job was a good guy. He did, some, he did good things. And in the eyes of God, he was a righteous man. But there was this accusation from the accuser who 
thought maybe Job is only doing good things because he has a good life. So let me take his good life and we'll see if he's really good. And God says, go for it. It's God's idea even. Go and, and test Job. He's faithful. So the accuser goes and he takes things from him. His house collapses on his children and they're killed. There's a fire, destroys some property. The enemy comes in and, and takes his, his livestock and, and kills his servants. Like It's devastation for Job. And somehow his integrity remains intact and he's crying out, truth, the Lord is sovereign. He gives and he takes away. I, already, I know I already would have not been there, but the attack continues and Job begins to lose his health. And he has this disease that he's left feeling hopeless in the middle of a field, scraping sores, like trying to find relief. And with integrity still intact, in chapter 3, he cries out to God with this passionate, dense, deep poem. The book of Job is poetry. We know that because of its format. So there's symbolism here, but there's deep passion, grieving coming out of Job. And then his wife, the one thing he got to keep is telling him, you should just curse God. Just give up. And Job still knows somehow there's got to be an answer. And so he has some friends that show up. And we spent some time, Jared walked through that the last couple of weeks of these friends who were trying to be comforters, I guess. But all they were really doing is making it worse for Job because they, the logic they followed is God is just. He runs the universe justly. So you did something wrong. It makes sense. It kind of makes sense, except for Job knows he's innocent. So it was causing him to be on this emotional roller coaster and arguing with his friends. No, I like he kind of got it. He would say, yes, God is good. God is sovereign. God is just. But at the same time, I don't deserve this. So something's off. And he flips back and forth. At one point, he's accusing God of being reckless. And at another point, he's, wait, God, you're good, but this is unjust. And so you can understand the conflict because in his mind, I'm innocent is his logic. I'm suffering, but it's not a suffering of divine justice because I'm innocent. Therefore, God must be unjust. It makes sense to him. So he begins to cry out, God, give me some answers. And we see a picture of this. I'll read this one in chapter 23. Job says three through five, he says, if only I knew how to find him. That is God. So that I could go to his throne, I would plead my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn how he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. From this cry, we hear the question, why God? Why God? And his desire is to have understanding as if the understanding would somehow take care of the tragedy when we know that it it wouldn't. And a faithful God hears his cry. And he shows up first through the voice of what seems like a prophet. This young guy who's been there the whole time is beginning to speak truth about God. And then God himself, the storm starts brewing in this scene. If you can visualize Job naked, covered in sores, broken, grieving the loss of everything, hearing his friends shame and condemn him. And he's reminded of the sovereignty of God. And then the sovereign Lord begins to appear as a tornado forms. And, and to summarize what we're, we're going to get into, God speaks to Job. Loud, booming, emphasizing his sovereignty, God speaks. It's a rebuke, but it's awesome or awful. 
or awe-inspiring. Some, some way, there's awe. And then it goes on for a couple chapters until Job finally is asked to respond. In fact, God says, Job, what do you have to say for yourself? And Job humbly responds in chapter 43 through 5. He says, I'm so insignificant. How can I answer you? I place my hand over my mouth. I have spoken once and, and I will not reply twice, but now I can add nothing. This man humbled, realizing who he's before. God goes on emphasizing his power. He's not done yet. He continues to talk about both good and evil and creation and how he rules them both. Challenging the very accusations of Job that he's somehow unjust. God addresses it. But never does he answer the question why. He doesn't give Job a reason for the suffering. He doesn't tell him about the conversation with the, the accuser. Rather, he, he says, I'm God. And a reminder to us all why he doesn't have to answer to anyone. So let's try to get a feel for it as we walk through some of this. Again, we're not going to be able to read all of it or break down all of it, but I want to get a feel for who God is or who he's saying he is here, what Job might have been feeling in that moment, and then some application to us. Because the reality is, when you're in the middle of suffering, there's not a lot that helps. And so I want to try and find us all some hope this morning. Job chapter 38. I'm going to read the first few verses. Remember the scene. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. He said, who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? Get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. The King James says, gird up your loins. It's this picture of get ready for for war. That would be enough for me. I don't know about you guys. (laughs) I'd be like, you know what? I was thinking about it. You see, what had happened was I was confused, and now I understand. Like, that would have been it. But God continues, because he knows what Job needs. Verse 4, where were you when I established the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who fixed its dimensions? Certainly, you know. You got to love the sarcasm of God. Oh, I do. I love the sarcasm of God. Certainly, you know, since you know I'm unjust, you must know everything. What what follows is God begins to break down for Job the universe. He starts setting before him everything in creation. The the bigness of the universe, the smallness, the beautiful complexities of it all. And every time he says, where were you? Or do you know how this works? Job, do you understand these things? Have you seen these things Do you tell the ocean where to go and where to stop? Bringing Job to a point of humility, considering the bigness of God. We don't have time to unpack all of it, but the beauty is evident already. And honestly, sometimes it's a little weird. Like in 39.1, it says, Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Have you watched the deer in labor? It's kind of weird. But there's significance in the specifics. It's not just God saying, I'm creator, you're not. He's saying, I am intimately involved in every aspect of creation beyond what you can understand. I know all of it. All of it. 
everything that was, everything that will be, and everything going on everywhere right now, God knows it and is in control of it and has set it in motion and is intimately involved in every aspect of it. He's a loving creator. It's lovingly sarcastic right here, but his point is he knows. God gets what Job doesn't get, and he brings him to a point to see his limited and narrow perspective isn't enough. He can't run anything. He can't make decisions about anything, and is especially not in this broken state. The point is, in order to make a claim to understand infinite justice, you have to have infinite perspective. And God alone has that. Understanding God's sovereignty should be freeing to you right now. It should lift weight from your shoulders. It's not on you. I often think about when I consider like the president. I would never want to be the president. I mean, there's power there. There's influence there. But there's decision making there that influences a lot of lives. And I don't want that pressure. I don't think I could handle that pressure. The criticism we give him, whoever it might be, is, is not fair from our perspective. We should talk about it. We're a democracy. We should talk about it. We get to vote. But that's a hard job. And that's nothing compared to king of the universe. So do we trust him? Understanding his sovereignty frees us and it humbles us, but do we trust him? Do we trust his perspective is better than ours? And do we understand the kingdom of God is not a democracy? Consider creation. Think about animals. Maybe not in this building, because that could get kind of scary. Outside of this building, there are definitely animals in here, though. Outside of this building, think about creation. Think about the birds in the air. Try to bring yourself to consider the creatures in Monroe, the snakes and the spiders in their corners doing their spider things and alligators and whatever else is out there, the possums in your backyard. Think about beyond Monroe. Think about the world, the creatures in the depths of the sea that we've never even seen, animals that live in the mountains that are hard to get to. Somehow these goats climb these clefts. It's amazing. I don't understand these things, but they're everywhere right now, living and breathing, doing their life. The, light, the circle of life, that's God's idea. He set these things in motion. He knows where all of those creatures are and exactly what they're doing because he gave them their being. And he knows their functions. Even the inanimate objects, the pins in your hands, the chairs you're sitting on, the floor underneath you, it belongs to God. Every subatomic particle that makes them, every electron circling, every atom in the entire universe and all the matter of the universe belongs to God and he knows it. He sent it in orbit. He planned it. He designed it and he's involved in it. I think we can come to a point where we understand maybe we don't know what we don't know. And in the middle of all of this speech of animals and weather there's significance. The wild animals are outside of the man's control. The weather is outside of man's control. And God says in 38, verse 36, who put wisdom in the heart or gave the mind understanding? It's really all he has to say about man in all of this. Who put wisdom in man's heart? Who gave understanding? The world is complex, but even what we know is a gift of God. Even what we can understand is from God not from ourselves. we got to pick up the pace. Whew. 
this is, this is the hard truth. It was never God's design or desire that we would avoid suffering. That's what we're getting to. It's not in his plans that you would avoid suffering. So in the midst of our suffering, there must be something we don't understand. And God is faithful to even when we don't understand to, to give us what we need. And that's what he's doing for Job right now. He's showing up and giving Job exactly what he needs. But if he gave us the capacity to wonder and to question and to see Job do that and God answer, there's hope there. We just, we just don't get it. We'd be fools to think that our questioning God would be answered by, oh, I guess I didn't think about that. That's a good point. Let me rewrite this. He wants instead for us to seek him. His desire is for us to depend on him, to go to him, because he knows everything. He has everything, and he has what's best for us. Our, our lives are better in his hands than in our hands. And if we trust him, if we can trust the suffering somehow has purpose, there's hope. But that's the only place we can find hope. It's not in avoiding the suffering. There's no hope to avoid suffering. The hope is found that the suffering might have purpose. Whatever comes our way, good or bad, based on our, our inescapable, narrow view of the universe, all we can do is trust the Lord and his, that he's infinitely bigger and we're safe there. So Job begins to see this, and that's when he responds in repentance. He's broken and he's humble, but God's not done. He begins to address some things more specifically. Job says, or God says to Job in verse 8 and 9 of chapter 40, this is after Job repents. God responds, would you really challenge my justice? Would you declare me guilty to justify yourselves or yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? Can you thunder with a voice like his? This is a third person flex. God's saying, do you see my arms? Can you hear my voice? He's talking about his sovereignty in the first part, he's talking about his power here, and his power is significant. Not only does God control all things, but he's got power to do it, and he works for the good of those he loves. So though he's flexing here, he begins to talk about some weird things, Bohemoth and Leviathan. Man, I wrote a lot about these guys that we're not going to talk about. It's very interesting, but totally off subject. The point of Bohemoth and Leviathan Maybe like a hippopotamus or an elephant. I don't know. I don't know what behemoth is. Just imagine a big animal. Leviathan is more like a dragon or a, a sea monster. Point is, though, these massive beasts, both powerful and untamable. Leviathan, not only powerful and huge, but also like fear-inducing in his presence. No one can take him on. Destruction comes when Leviathan comes. Everyone who knows of Leviathan is terrified of Leviathan. Seems to be God has a point of addressing these, these things that may or may not be real creatures. I don't think that's as relevant. Both creatures were certainly a part of ancient Near Eastern mythology, but they could have also been symbolically real in the poetry. It doesn't matter as much as you feeling and sensing their power because God seems to be pointing out even the creatures that feel unsafe, even the creatures that are massive and seem to be designed for evil, even they have good purpose under the righteous power of God. 
Even the most terrifying creatures imaginable belong to God and can be used by God. So catch this. Even Satan belongs to God. I don't know if you've bought into some narrative that says God and Satan are dueling for souls. That's not the story. God is in control of all things. Satan belongs to God. It's not a sometimes God wins, sometimes Satan wins. It's good versus evil. We'll see how it ends. God wins every time. There's never, never even a chance that Satan's going to win. He's a creature. God's a creator. He's never lost power. He's never lost control. So I don't know how you're suffering. I don't know what your pain is, but he's never lost control. And you can be sure he's never going to lose control. Perhaps you've heard he won't give you more than you can take, which is a misunderstanding of a passage of Scripture in the New Testament, but I think Job's life alone could beg to differ. It seems fairly obvious God may crush you if that's what it takes to save you. It seems he knows what's best. So if our surrender is giving God all of ourselves, if we really mean you can have all of me, then what say do we think we have with what he does with your life? I don't know how God's going to use me in my life. I know he's faithful, though. I don't know if somehow it's of greater benefit for me to contract a disease of some kind. I don't know if somehow it's of greater benefit if if I'm dead. But God knows. So if I'm really giving my life to him, shouldn't it be that sort of surrender? Don't you think that's what it means when it says count up the cost of following Jesus? Don't you think that's what it means when it says pick up your cross, this instrument for crucifixion, for murder? Pick up your cross and follow me? I think certainly God knows. But again, do we trust him? Do we believe that there's greater joy to be experienced on the other side of the suffering? And when when you're in the storm, do you know that God is there with you? Job does because he spoke. But if God didn't speak, it's just a tornado. One more thing on Job's list. But he's there with us. I think of the story in New Testament, Jesus in the boat with his disciples. They're freaking out. And Jesus wakes up and he says, tells the storm to stop. And it does because he's Jesus. And they're like, whoa. And what does he say? Where was your faith? Where was your faith? He doesn't say you don't have faith. He says, where did you put it? Who are you looking at? In the middle of the storms, Jesus is in the boat with us. So you can get your theology right. You can get all your doctrine nailed down. But if you don't fear the Lord, when you're suffering, none of that matters. And and I think we can empathize with Job here because if you've not experienced some of the things he's experienced, certainly you've not experienced all of it, but maybe you know loss, maybe you know the pain of loss, maybe you know sickness, maybe you've seen lives destroyed by sin in the world, maybe you're suffering and you feel like it's crushing you, but maybe you think it's too big and you're not thinking God's bigger. Instead of being overcome with anxiety, stop and behold the greatness of God, being all of him. I think, 
sometimes I, I don't know if I want to be vulnerable or not. I have to like pause and think about it. Um, some of you guys know some of the things that go on in my life. There's some things as I've, I've been in counseling for like a year and a half now. It's coaching. That's what we're calling it. It's coaching because I'm training to be a church planner, but turned into a lot of counseling and a lot of dealing with some deep, dark things and some things that I've never said out loud that I remember from childhood, some pains of, of father wounds because my dad left, some struggles I've had in life just trying to figure out who I am, you know, things that everyone should explore. And I've hated it at times and I've loved it at others. But what, what I love right now as I'm working through who Job is and what he's experiencing is the thing that bothers me the most is the mystery of certain things. As an example, I don't know why things happen, but I don't know why they continue to happen. Like the suffering is continuing in some ways. My dad still has not come back, and I'm going to be 32. In my head, I think I should be over this. Like, he's not coming back. Let's get over it. But somehow it still hurts, and I want to know why. And so whatever you plug into that source of pain in your life, the question that probably bothers you the most is not is the pain going to go away? But why does the pain exist? Like, is there something I can change? Is there something I need to do differently? If, if there is, just tell me what it is. I'll do it. Why, God, is my cry when I'm in suffering? Why would God leave us with the uncertainty and the pain? Why are so many things not clear? Why isn't it working out the way we thought it would work out? Why isn't it getting better? Surely there's a reason. Something has to be fixed. Something has to be adjusted. Something has to be changed. I just want the suffering to stop, and I want to know why. But what if our suffering has purpose? So just don't let it stop there. Feel the pain, and then just push through it. Because the suffering somehow has purpose, and maybe we don't know why. But certainly we can begin to see the purpose. I don't have answers for you right now. So if you were counting on that, I'm not there. But in your suffering, here's what I do know. Your task is not to figure it out. It's to trust. If you belong to God, you can trust he's for you. Job actually frees us to cry out to God and lament. He's freeing me to yell, why? Job frees me to say, I don't like this. It's not right. Why? You should feel free to lament, to cry out to God. It's actually a sign of faith because you believe he hears you. You believe he's listening. Why is this happening? Lament is holy. And I used to think that Job 38 through 41 was God reacting to Job in, in this how dare you type of bravado, this response that says, don't you know who I am? as if he's trying to oppress Job and shame him for his, his pain. It used to feel like that to me. Like, if we think of God as this, this big, scary, angry God who shows up to just correct you and shame you, then that can easily be how you read those chapters. But I don't think that's it. Because Job doesn't go anywhere. If he were terrified and shamed, he wouldn't stay. In the midst of Job's crazy life storms, God shows up in a powerful, no doubt intimidating, definitely getting the point across, but 
There's love here. Somehow Job is able to see the bigness of God and still feel safe in his presence. To still feel loved. And his response is right. He's humbled before God. That's what it, that's what it looks like to fear God. Not shame and condemnation for feeling the pain and hating it. Not shame and condemnation for doubting because it doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem like it should be this way. You're not condemned here. You're encouraged to know your God has got this. He's big. He's powerful. He knows what He's doing. Trust Him. And then you have fear of the Lord. And from there, you can have wisdom. And you can begin to make some decisions as you're broadened, it's broadened to see. Not all the decisions are going to be right. You're not going to get things perfect. But you know He could destroy you, but you love and trust He won't. In the end, we see in chapter 42, verses 4 and 6, Job's final response is, it's something like this. It's not on the screen. I just took some sections of it. This is, this is the meaning behind his response. Surely I spoke about things I didn't understand, things too wondrous for me to know. I reject my words, and I'm sorry for them. That's where Job, Job is left. It's not to say that his sin was the reason for the, for the storms in his life. It's not to say his suffering was because he deserved it, because that was clear from the beginning. He didn't. But in the midst of his suffering, he cried out in doubt. He cried out and called God unjust. And he's repenting of those things because he sees he didn't know that somehow the suffering has purpose. He's not repenting because he understands now. He's repenting because he sees God and he knows he can trust him. And then God goes on to rebuke the false preaching of his, his friends that weren't any help. In verses 7 and 8 of chapter 42, he says two different times, For you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job. Now, it's interesting, the rebuke is, you've not spoken the truth, but also Job has. We know that not everything Job said was true. Some things were certainly wrong, but he spoke truth. So how? He didn't, he didn't like it. He hated the suffering, but he knew his suffering was undeserved. So he continued to claim the truth. There's got to be some other way. His friends are saying, God's just, you're a sinner, you deserve it. Job's saying, I didn't do anything to deserve this. He's, his conclusion was God's unjust. He now sees that was wrong. But he knows there's still something else. So his proclamation of truth remained. There's got to be another way. There's got to be another answer. And in fact, there is. Undeserved suffering does exist. Sometimes there's pain that you don't deserve, but it still has purpose. And in fact, if we don't believe undeserved suffering exists, you can't believe that undeserved grace exists. Now, we have something that Job's friends didn't have, that Job didn't have. We have the full story, but we also have Jesus. The only innocent one. The only one who truly didn't deserve any suffering suffered the most. And if not for that undeserved suffering, we would not get the grace that we don't deserve. If there's no undeserved suffering, there's no cross the epitome of that very thing. And through Jesus, God has not only shown us great power, but, 
but we have this perfect picture of his great love for us. Christ suffered a spiritual and emotional weight that we could never imagine. If you want to get your head around suffering, you can't imagine the suffering it is to take on the sins of everyone who would ever believe. Not to mention the suffering of being nailed to a cross after being beaten and shamed and and his friends abandoned him. And yet he rose victorious over sin and death, though it looked like sin had won. His victory over sin, leaving the grave, ascending into heaven, this promise to return is hope for us. Everyone who would ever believe has eternal life because of that suffering, free forever from all suffering. And I don't think that that we can still get our minds around the meaning of suffering, but, but maybe we can at least get to a point that suffering has meaning. And I think we may be tempted to still believe it doesn't. So consider the promises of God who gives us hope in the midst of our suffering, who says, I can be a God of peace for you while you're suffering. Peace that surpasses understanding. Consider a God who has invited us to share in the death of Jesus, to take on suffering in this world while we're still here as the body of Christ, to bear the beatings of the world as our Savior did, to take on the shame as our Savior did. Consider that God has invited you into something bigger than you could ever imagine, and it involves you suffering. It's not that we would live this life with Christ and somehow suffer less and less until one day it's gone. It's that it's going to get really bad. It's a promise of God. The world's going to hate you because you identify with the one they hated. When they look at you and see Jesus, they don't just see happiness. They see someone they hate. Someone who's establishing a kingdom that directly combats their kingdom. They're going to want to kill you because of that. Suffering will be great. But you're sharing in a suffering that has purpose. It's something that goes beyond us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, as long as I've been serving Christ in ministry, I've used this passage to people who are suffering because it has such beauty It reminds us of something beyond us. It says, therefore, we do not give up. So when suffering comes, when you're you're feeling beat and knocked down, we don't give up. We maintain our hope. We take heart. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary and light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. As a way of wrapping this up, I want to read a paraphrase I made of a John Piper quote. So you Piper fans, it's okay to to paraphrase. He's not the Bible. I paraphrase it because I want to make it more applicable to us. And he uses weird words sometimes, and I just wanted to change them. You don't need that explanation. Hear these words, consider who you are in in a reflection of what I just read from, from 2 Corinthians. Not only is all your affliction momentary and light in comparison to the glory of eternity, but all of it is totally meaningful. Every millisecond of your pain inflicted by sinful man or the sin filled world, every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is producing a glory beyond comparison that will be yours in eternity. 
It doesn't matter if it's cancer or criticism. It doesn't matter if it's slander or sickness. It isn't meaningless. It's doing something. We can see what it's doing, or we can't see what it's doing. We don't look to what is seen. We look to Jesus, and we trust him. When nothing is what you thought it would be, when you feel all alone, when your mom dies, when your dad doesn't love you, when your kids abandon the faith, when you've got cancer, when you lose all sense of who you are, don't lose hope. Don't think these things are meaningless. They're not. Trust God is working for us an eternal weight of glory. Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer being is wasting away, our inner person is being renewed day by day. Father, there's so much we don't understand. God, there's so much we don't see. We can't get our minds around the bigness of our context, much less the bigness of the universe, much less the bigness of the God who runs it all. Help us, sovereign king. We know you're not just our king, you're our father. So as your children, we come to you looking to our father with trust. Despite what may be wasting away around us, in spite of the suffering, in spite of the attacks of our enemies, we trust you. Help us trust you more. Help us believe in a gospel that changes us, that gives us hope, that shows us where to place our feet, that gives us the ability to have wisdom. Jesus, save the lost in this room. God, I don't know who they are, but certainly you do. Show up for them in a real way this morning. Let them know your presence is near. Let them feel your love for them. Help us all as we endure life to trust you, knowing that it's all coming to an end, but hopeful that that end will be glorious because you are faithful always. Help us to praise you in this even in the storms, that we lift our hands and sing praise to the King of all kings, the creator of the universe. In Jesus' name, amen.